0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Biden coming down with COVID on the eve of the January 6th hearing featuring the former White House Deputy National Security Advisor and the former White House Deputy Press Secretary. Joining us to discuss what tonight's testimony could add to the powerful case against Trump that has emerged from the hearing so far is Lisa Graves, the Executive Director of the new corporate watchdog group True North Research. She has served as a Senior Advisor in all three branches of the federal government, as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, as Chief Counsel for Nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as Deputy Chief of the Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. We will discuss the need to indict Trump and put him on trial, even though in this divided country a unanimous jury might be hard to find since there are more than 1 in 12 Trumpsters in the land. Then, with the CIA director announcing that, quote, Putin is entirely too healthy, we will look into whether Putin's strategy of a long war with Ukraine designed to erode support from the West in the hope NATO resolve will start to fray will work. Joining us is William Arkin a senior editor at Newsweek and one of America's premier military experts whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times. He served in Army Intelligence in West Berlin during the Cold War and has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations including the United States Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch, and the Natural Resources Defense Council. The best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars, his latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11, and we will discuss his article at Newsweek, Why Joe Biden and Vladimir Zelensky Won't Say Ukraine is Winning the War. Then finally we'll examine the concern that every crime that the January 6th committee shows that goes unpunished moves the line of acceptable political behavior in the the United States a little lower and speak with Stephen Marsh, a novelist and culture writer who has written for The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The New Yorker, Esquire and many other outlets. His books include The Unmade Bed and How Shakespeare Changed Everything and his latest book is The Next Civil War Dispatches from the American Future, and we will discuss his article at The Guardian, The January 6th Hearings are a Brilliant Spectacle. That's also their danger. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent, without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Lisa Graves, Executive Director of the new corporate watchdog group True North Research. She has served as a Senior Advisor in all three branches of the federal government, as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, as Chief Counsel for Nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as a Deputy Chief of the Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lisa Graves.
1: Thank you so much, Ian. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, we're learning, of course, today that President Biden has tested positive for COVID. Apparently, he has some kind of a dose of it. It may be relatively mild, but given his age, of course, people are concerned. But obviously, everybody that I know, (laughs) I'm sure everybody that you know, will be tuning in tonight for the uh, January 6th hearing that begins at 8 p.m., Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific, which is when we go to air. So, I wanted to talk to you about it since you served in the Justice Department. It seems to me that you couldn't make up some of this stuff that we've learned so far, in particular the attempt to kidnap the Vice President by the Secret Service. And they clearly, Tony Onato, and he's, and he, by the way, James Murray, who's the head of the Secret Service, was chosen by Tony Anato. Trump Mm -hmm. offered him the job, Mm -hmm. Uh, and Anato was a total Trumpster, so he chose another total Trumpster in Murray. So it's very likely that these two colluded to destroy the evidence, but it looks as if they were instructing the Secret Service to simply kidnap the Vice President from the garage of the Capitol to get him out of the way, so that he wouldn't be able to certify the uh, election. I mean, you couldn't make that up, Lisa.
1: No, I was thinking uh, uh, before you called, Ian, that uh, truth is stranger than fiction. Uh, you just can't imagine a th- scenario with this uh, sort of suggish, thuggish behavior that we are hearing about. And, you know, I, I was certainly suspicious, as I'm sure you were and others were, in hearing the reports that day that that Mike Pence refused to get into the car to take him away from the Capitol facility, and he insisted on staying and refused to get in that vehicle, um, which was suspicious at the time, and certainly apparently warranted um, that there was uh, an effort to try to keep him from performing his constitutional duties that was seemingly at the behest of these Trump agents. And I think what's also just terribly disturbing is this idea that any president would be able to determine um, who, is, um, who is serving in the Secret Service around him, that, that someone, that a president would politicize uh, that role, that protective role that way, and choose people who seemingly uh, uh, put their loyalty to him perhaps above all else.
0: Right. But Lisa, we learned that from James Comey from his testimony years ago where he said that Trump basically you know, had a private dinner with him and said, I demand total loyalty. And it made you, obviously made Comey uncomfortable because he yeah, was a Boy Scout. Right. I, but
1: shouldn't be, I shouldn't be shocked. I shouldn't be shocked. And yet somehow it is bracing to think of the Secret Service agents um, or some of the Secret Service agents to be his loyalists versus actually loyal to the Constitution and to the offices that they are intended to protect versus the, you know, political animal in that office.
0: Well, we're going to be hearing from, I don't know that there's much going to be discussed about the missing Secret Service emails and texts um, tonight from the hearing because they're going to have the former Deputy White House Press Secretary and the deputy national security Advisor, Matthew Pottinger. Now he's he's somebody that isn't a part of Trump world, and he he was a, a hired by of all people by General Flynn, who he had worked with in Afghanistan on a report on the failures of U.S. intelligence in Afghanistan. And even though Mike Flynn only lasted what three weeks or something in the White House, he brought Matthew Pottinger in, who's he, and he's a former reporter for the Wall Street Journal who spent a lot of time in China and really knows China very well and had you know, run-ins with the, the thuggish security people in China. So he's a very credible guy, and he was a guy that forced Trump to get real about what was happening with COVID because Trump was listening to Xi Jinping's blandishments, and Pottinger had other other connections in China who were able to say that this thing was really serious when Trump was saying it was no big deal. So we could actually get some interesting observations from him. What do you think?
1: Well, that's right. It will be interesting to hear what he has to say about what he saw and what he heard. Um, And also, as you point out, Ian, this issue of the destruction of evidence in the immediate aftermath of what was obviously, uh, I think to anyone who was watching it, a crime unfolding. Um, you know, this idea that the, this is some sort of routine destruction of these um, of, of the of the communications, the digital content, you know, it, it's very suspect. And um, that's also why um, if we don't have that that specific kind of evidence, um, there's just been so much more that's been produced um, by this investigation, this bipartisan investigation um, that has really relied on Republicans. Uh, those few um Republicans of conscience who um, happened to serve with Trump, but um, observed that his behavior was completely inconsistent with the oath of office to defend our constitution, um, including to not try to sabotage our election and try to subvert our democracy. So I'm definitely tuning in tonight. And I hope uh, all of your listeners will as well, because um, these hearings are vitally important to... Our future, um, the future of our government and our ability to have self-government versus um, this uh, sort of authoritarian um, takeover of our country by uh, by Trump and his stooges.
0: Well, we'll post today's program earlier at backgroundbriefing.org so that people can hear it (laughs) before they tune in to the hearings tonight. And again, I'm speaking with Lisa Graves, who's Executive Director of the new corporate watchdog group, True North Research. She has served as a Senior Advisor in all three branches of the Federal Government, as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, as Chief Counsel for Nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as Deputy Chief of the Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. So the whole p- point and purpose of these hearings is to get the Justice Department to... Look at what they've produced. They made a very good case, albeit on television. So at the end of the day, Lisa, doesn't this come down to the simple fact that the Justice Department has got to indict Trump, and they've got to put him on trial, and frankly, they've got to put him in jail.
1: In my opinion, I agree with that completely. We cannot have this sort of behavior, uh, this sort of criminal acts that have been fully outlined by the evidence in, this, in, this, in these hearings ignored. Um, it's absolutely vital that Trump be held accountable criminally, um, that those around him who aided him and abetted his conspiracy be held criminally liable, um, and that uh, in fact, Trump's ongoing efforts to subvert our democracy, uh, his pressure to um, state legislatures to overturn the results of the election, that, that his actions be condemned and uh, condemned by a court of law, condemned by our Justice Department. That's not a partisan act. That's a nonpartisan act in defense of our nonpartisan Constitution and our very system of government. So I think it's absolutely vital that these criminal charges, that criminal charges be pursued against Trump and his co-conspirators.
0: So what do you think the re- the effect will be? I mean... A lot of people are dumping on, on Merrick Garland, saying he's just being chicken. But he may well just be being cautious, and and the worst thing that could happen is you bring, a, bring an indictment on Trump and he somehow skates. Now, it doesn't look like that's happening with uh, Stephen Bannon. It looks like the, the even though that guy, the judge in Bannon's uh, case, is a Trump appointee, they've really made this, case go through at lightning speed and I believe that that uh, Bannon didn't even produce any witnesses uh, in his defense so it looked like maybe he will go to jail which would be a good thing because he 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 bilked his own trump supporters <laughs> and pocketed a million dollars out of these maga people to build the wall and his co-conspirators all are facing jail time and he got pardoned by Trump so that's a little bit of justice there, but um, do you think that the press and a lot of Democrats are being a little unfair with uh, Merrick Garland?
1: I don't think they're being unfair. I, I know that there is this sort of general notion that uh, one political party should not be prosecuting the former political uh, political party. Of course, Trump uh, destroyed that norm in his um, demands to lock her up for Hillary. In that case, I think those were meritless uh, allegations designed for, per, you know, purely political purposes, given uh, also the the treatment of Trump and his family toward documents uh, that were supposed to be required and kept secret and maintained. But if you look at this circumstance, this is an extraordinary situation where you have a sitting president of the United States who has basically endorsed the assassination of his own vice president, said that his followers were were rightly angry and uh, wanted their violence toward to them was in essence justified um someone who who unleashed that crowd on on his vice president who sought to subvert our uh, the counting of our votes and our top you know presidential election in the presidential election, and who um has continued to lie to the American people to his followers over and over again and uh, raised a huge amount of money through those lies and continues to do so so I hope that Merrick Garland um, has the courage to do the right thing. And in my view, and the view of many people, the absolute unequivocal right thing is to pursue criminal indictments of Donald Trump, the criminal prosecution of Donald Trump, and uh, punishment uh, in jail for the crimes of Donald Trump and his co-conspirators.
0: So just to finish up on Bannon, obviously the trial went very quickly. And probably by the end of the day, it'll be before the jury, right? Right. What happens with the jury? At, at least it's a Washington, D.C. jury, not a not a, uh, a Virginia jury, which is, tends to be more conservative. In the trace of indicting Trump, would that go to a jury as well? Because the country is divided, and there are lots of uh, Trump supporters out there, and it wouldn't take too many to hang a jury.
1: Well, that's, I think, Trump's gambit, is that, in essence, in any scenario he could find one, Uh, Fan or fanboy uh, to hang a jury, in essence, to prevent a unanimous verdict. But you know, prosecutors have a duty to uh, prosecute crimes, especially these most serious and severe crimes we've ever seen committed, uh, in my view, by a president of the United States, and that includes Richard Nixon. And so there is always the chance that some juror could hold out and refuse to convict him, which is why I'm sure. Those who are examining the evidence are looking for the you know, strongest case among the many potential criminal charges that could be filed. But it's certainly the case that you know, Trump has already seemingly uh, tried to tamper with witnesses, uh, influence witnesses before this January 6th committee, and um, may well be counting on mischief or other help from people who would set aside the law and their obligations to follow the law in order to try to keep him from being convicted. But, you know, and that could well happen with Bannon Bannon too. There could be a holdout or something. But I'm hoping that people who take the oath of being a juror will take that oath seriously and will follow the law uh, to its logical conclusion and convict people like Bannon and like Trump, and Trump in particular, um, for the evidence that shows that they've engaged in criminal activity or in the case of Bannon, uh, the array of... uh, Uh, the contempt and other things that he's been charged with.
0: So just in the last minute, since you're in Wisconsin, it's amazing that just a few days ago, Donald Trump contacted the Republican head of the house in the Wisconsin legislature and asked him to decertify Biden's victory in the state of uh, Wisconsin in the 2020 elections. To my mind, that indicates that Trump is losing it. I mean, he, he he had a pretty tenuous grasp on reality to begin with. Is What's your sense of that's so bizarre?
1: Well, you know, I'm not a fan of Robin Voss, the uh, representative in the Assembly here that you mentioned, this popcorn salesman guy who's who's been uh, done a, a lot of damage to the state of Wisconsin, but apparently there's a line that he too won't cross, just like the former uh, or the leader of uh, the uh, Arizona Senate who... Um, was just um, uh, chastised by his own party for daring to testify truthfully to the January 6th committee. So I'm heartened by the fact that there are some things that even Robin Voss won't do uh, uh, in terms of putting his party ahead of his country and ahead of his state. Um, But it is genuinely shocking. And I'm sorry to use that word so many times. It is just so shocking to see Trump even to this day to this week trying to get Um, Right wing legislators to overturn or try to try to nullify the actual results of the citizens of the state of Wisconsin. And I'm one of them um, in that presidential election in which he lost definitively definitively lost in which his lies have been absolutely rebutted and his claims um, by people uh, backed up by people like Sidney Powell and John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani have been utterly discredited, even by members of his own party and his own appointees to the White House Counsel's Office and to the Justice Department. So um, to say that Donald Trump is shameless is to uh, say that, you know, the the world is round. Uh, it's uh, obvious, so obviously true. But he, he certainly seems to know no boundary, and it just underscores his absolute unfitness for any public trust, for any position of public trust, uh, given his ongoing uh, destructive conduct toward our elections, the core uh, component, a core component in our democracy.
0: Well, Lisa Graves, I thank you so much for joining us here today.
1: Thank you so much, Ian. Thanks for having me on.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Lisa Graves, the Executive Director of the new corporate watchdog group True North Research. She has served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government, as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, as Chief Counsel for Nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as a Deputy Chief of the Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. We're going to take a brief station break. we back looking into whether Putin's strategy of a long war with Ukraine designed to erode support from the West in the hope that NATO resolve will start to fray will work.
2: Tell it to the judge on Sunday. Tell it to.
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24/7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is William Arkin, a senior editor at Newsweek and one of one of America's premier military experts whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post and the Los Angeles Times. He served in Army Intelligence in West Berlin during the Cold War and has been a consultant to a wide-ranging organizations, including the United States Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch, and the Natural Resources Defense Council. He's the best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars, and his latest book is On That Day, The Definitive definitive Timeline of 9-11, And he has an article at Newsweek why Joe Biden and Vladimir Zelensky won't say Ukraine is winning the war. Welcome to Background Briefing, William Arkin.
3: Thanks for having me on again, Ian.
0: Well, thanks, Bill. And I just wanted to do an update with you. I just spoke the other day to uh, George Beebe, the former chief analyst at the CIA on Russia. Uh, He seemed to think that Putin's strategy was to drag the war out for a year or two and break the resolve of the NATO nations, particularly Germany, after freezing during the winter without Russian gas, etc. Is that the strategy, you think, that's going on here?
3: Well, there's a large geopolitical picture, Ian. And I know that most people think that uh, Putin is seeking this sort of prolonged war, and that the resolve of Europe will decline. And if Putin is successful in his endeavor of uh, lengthening the war, making it drag on for a year or more, uh, then certainly the resolve of the West will be challenged. But it doesn't really match with the facts on the ground. And when you look at the facts on the ground, Ukraine is uh, winning, Russia is losing, not just by not winning, but losing in really significant ways. And uh, to me, uh, we're, we're at an inflection point where I'm guessing that over the next month or so, unless Russia is able to uh, restart its offensive in a meaningful way, uh, we're going to continue to see the sort of stagnant front lines and uh, Ukraine rather than Russia uh, beginning to take more and more territory back from the invaders.
0: So last time we spoke, you had an article in Newsweek on Putin's health and a cancer operation that he had in April. Uh, Today, the CIA director said Putin is is entirely too healthy. So what do you make of that?
3: Well, I, I know that the U.S. government is working very hard to suppress stories regarding Putin's health. I think they believe at this point that it's a bit of wishful thinking that Uh, might lull people into believing that they can just wait for Putin to die and the war will be over. So it is part of a kind of propaganda war in order to uh, preserve Western resolve. And, uh, you know, Americans hardly pay attention to the Ukraine war anymore. And when they hear about it, they hear that Russia is winning. So I think that the CIA director was trying to uh, kind of create a little bit of a information corrective, and uh, by all measures, um, though Russia is starting really to feel the pinch of sanctions, and one of the most significant effects is that it's not really able to regenerate artillery projectiles or bombs or missiles uh, to support the war in Ukraine. So in other words, it doesn't really have the the numbers to, to continue this war for a year or more. And that's kind of a hidden element of sanctions. I mean, they're not having any impact on the Russian elite, but they're definitely having an industrial impact uh, further down the pipeline.
0: So they're shooting something like 25,000 artillery shells a day. Is that right?
3: So uh, right now in the war, uh, let's paint the picture. Uh, we're talking about uh, a front that runs about 1,500 miles, 2,500 kilometers, and that's the distance from Los Angeles to St. Louis. So this is a, a, a very large geographic war. Now, on top of that, you have Russian forces spread out not only along this entire front, uh, but there really is only fighting in about a dozen areas, uh, these are the a dozen or so uh, areas where the Russians are trying to make uh, uh, advances, or where the Ukrainians are fighting counteroffensives. So along this entire 1,500-mile front, the Russians are shooting about 24,000 projectiles a day. Now, it's it's a huge number, and it, and it's it, it it's uh, it's one that's bracing, but. It, ha- it has to be thought of in the context of of this entire front. So, you know, if 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 you lay it out linearly, then it's ten projectiles per kilometer per day, and obviously it's not that at all. It's twenty four thousand into maybe a dozen areas. So in those dozen areas, the the fighting is fierce and the artillery battle between the two sides. Uh, is highly destructive. And how destructive? Well, one another thing that uh, William Burns, the CIA director, said was that the CIA currently estimates that about 15,000 Russian soldiers have died, 45,000 have been injured. That 60,000 number, by the way, Ian, is one third of the starting troops of the war, or one half of those who are on the front lines. And the Brits have recently said that that the Russians have lost about 30 percent of their combat effectiveness since the start of the war. So this is not a good picture for Russia. And it doesn't have the reserves. It doesn't have the equipment. It doesn't have the logistics to be able to regenerate their forces on the front. People have been stuck there since the beginning of February, and there's been little respite for the frontline units that have been fighting. At the same time, Ukraine is starting to receive you know, enormous uh, stockpiles of, of both guns, armored vehicles, and ammunition from the West. And uh, you know, we fa- we focused a lot of attention on the HIMARS. This is the U.S. Uh, multiple rocket launcher that's relatively long range, and that and there are a dozen now on the ground in Ukraine, and they are certainly having an effect. It seems to be a very effective weapon in in shooting at Russian ammunition stockpiles, which, of course, if you can deplete those, then the soldiers at the front just don't have anything left to fire. Um, And on top of that, there are probably artillery guns and projectiles coming in from, oh, I don't know, 20 countries or so. And they're all of a standard NATO Western size. So every one of those guns can pretty much shoot all of the projectiles that are being supplied to Ukraine at the same time. And that pipeline of regenerating weapons and uh, arms, heavy weapons to Ukraine, that that pipeline is just beginning to uh, open and just beginning to have its effect. And because Russia has run out of long range missiles, because it has shortages of bombs, because it has shortages, it's showing shortages on the front lines. Um, They they don't really have even an effective means of stopping the flow of Western weapons into Ukraine. And so everything on the ground points to the fact that Russia can barely sustain the war at the level that it's uh, fighting now. And though you hear picture, you hear an image of Russia is taking over this city and that city and moving into Severodonetsk and then moving into Lysiansk, and moving on now threatening Bakhmut and and Kramatorsk and other places. The truth of the matter is that uh, at the peak, uh, Russia probably had control of about uh, 3,500 or so, uh, no, more like 2,500 or so um, towns and villages. And uh, since that peak, uh, Ukraine has liberated about a thousand of them. So, so the numbers, even in terms of like control of territory in Ukraine, are now shifting in Ukraine's favor.
0: And again, I'm speaking with William Arkin, a senior editor at Newsweek and one of America's premier military experts whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post and the Los Angeles Times. He served in Army Intelligence in West Berlin during the Cold War and has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations including the United States Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch and the Natural Resources Defense Council. He's also the best selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars, and his latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9 11. And he has an article at Newsweek Why Joe Biden and Vladimir Zelensky won't say Ukraine is winning the war. So I also understand that the um, because there's a shortage of uh, manpower and Putin doesn't want to do a general mobilization, he's sort of bribing these kids from the hinterlands from Siberia and, and he doesn't want to try and recruit the Russians from uh, the big cities like St. Petersburg and Moscow because they're apparently not <laughs> they don't want to be cannon fodder they're, they're better informed uh, so he, he's relying heavily on the mercenaries like the the Wagner group and the Chechens as well so that's what you you hear, but but your piece at Newsweek that I cited in the intro suggests that both Biden and Zelensky don't want to say how well the Ukrainians are doing on the battlefield because they want to keep the concern going in the West that Ukraine needs more and more arms and ammunition. So they want to keep that flowing. Is that a summary of what you wrote?
3: Well, nobody has an interest at this point in, I I guess I would be blunt and say telling the truth about what's going on in Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine at this point is is highly dependent upon Western resupply, and so therefore it has to uh, paint a picture of dire circumstances, which will then keep everyone from, you know, the Lithuanians and the Norwegians all the way to the Spanish uh, supplying arms and continuing to supply arms. Uh, so there is that Ukrainian interest in uh, painting a dire picture and speaking of war crimes and uh, and Russian successes. And then on the U.S. side, I mean, there, there's no evidence at this point that the American people are very engaged in the Ukraine war anymore. Uh, we've now you know, we're now back to Johnny Depp. And um, the, the truth of the matter is that I, that that I think for the Biden administration, You know, I don't think they want to go into the November elections with war on on the top of people's minds. Now, you know, there's so many other issues that are facing America that, you know, war might be the better the better uh, uh, propaganda battle. But but my point more is just that there's no one who really uh, it it seems to be an objective reporter on, on Ukraine. And I include. A large swath of the news media in that as well, so we're not getting a clear picture of what's going on on the ground. Uh, you know, we're rarely getting numbers that begins to put the the war into perspective, um, and uh, people are very focused on war crimes. I have an article coming out soon about that, and uh, you know, I, it's 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 no there's no question that Russia has committed war crimes, but I don't think that it's committed. Uh, as many war crimes as people believe in its bombing of Ukraine. I mean, they're happening on the ground by individual soldiers, which is where the accountability starts anyhow. So I I do believe at this point that there's no one who really wants to crow about the fact that Russia is losing, because to do so is to sort of make this this taut situation a little bit less taut, and that has enormous reverberating consequences.
0: And having Ukraine's first lady speak to the Congress and go to the White House, that's a part of what you're talking about, Bill, the idea that they're keeping up the narrative that Ukraine is under terrible duress and needs urgent help. Yep.
3: And basically this week and the last week or so, We've seen a, a new propaganda effort on the part of the Ukrainian government to want to label Russia a terrorist state. And, um, you know, they're fighting a war. Uh, to, to, to name them a terrorist state seems to me to like a step backwards. Like, you know, they are they are a, um, a an aggressor in an aggressive war. And uh, so to name them a terrorist state makes no sense to me, but the word terrorism has tremendous resonance in in, in, in American and Western society. And so again, I see it as part of a, a an overall uh, uh, effort on the part of the Ukrainians to keep to keep the heat on and to create the impression uh, of of of, you know, Russia on the brink of success and and of course obviously uh, conducting in enormous war crimes that will motivate people to uh, continue to support and 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 continue to be interested in the war. Uh, you know this is the longest uh, period of ground combat between uh, two uh, uh, peer competitors that we've now seen since the Korean war and, um, you know, nothing in, in, in Kosovo or Iraq or Afghanistan approximates what we're seeing here, because this is a tank on tank artillery and artillery battle. That was never really the kind of battle that was fought, uh, in, in those countries, except for, you know, a 21 day period in 2003, so uh, this kind of prolonged war, you know, now doesn't fit with our uh, 160 character social media world. And uh, I think people are struggling to both understand what's going on on the ground, as well as to um, uh, figure out what is the likely outcome, what, what, what's gonna end the war. And that's an important question because at this point, uh, if Putin is healthy and the Russians are making every effort that they can, although it's not being very successful at regenerating its forces, then the question does have to be asked, how is this going to end?
0: Well, let's, in the last couple of minutes, address that then, Bill. If Putin has basically managed to take most of Luhansk, he's done, I think, pretty much all of Luhansk, working on Donetsk, and he's got a land corridor now to Crimea, would that be enough for him to declare victory?
3: Well, I don't see the Russians declaring victory at this point. I mean, it seems even this week that they've doubled down, saying that since the West is providing Russia, uh, a Ukraine with offensive weapons, that Russia is now going to expand its objectives beyond Donetsk and, and, and beyond Luhansk. You know, they've said this before, that they were going to take the entire South, and then they sort of backed away you know, they invaded the north and now they've completely withdrawn. So uh, I, I don't know what the Russians have in mind in terms of what they want their end point to be. But I don't think think that they are going to be successful of, at taking all of Donbass anytime soon. So a declaration of victory is really dependent upon at least making advances in Donetsk that's going to match what they've done in the north in Luhansk. And, and they don't seem to be very successful right now in that endeavor. So to me, you know, wars rarely end with defeat of an enemy. You know, that's um, I, I I just they they've they've they have they they do not end at the negotiating table. They don't end with total victory. They mostly end as a result of exhaustion on the part of the combatants. And uh, I think we're really waiting for Vladimir Putin to come to grips with the fact that his forces are never going to be able to achieve his political and geopolitical goals. And and that's going to be the story of the Ukraine war, which is that everyone had various geopolitical pictures of the war, but on the ground, the numbers and the facts of the combat uh, really, uh, in the end, became the most dominant factor in bringing the war to a grinding halt.
0: Just in closing, you were saying earlier, Bill, that uh, the sanctions are starting to bite. Is that also a big factor in perhaps pressuring Putin to come to his senses?
3: Well, there's not much evidence that the sanctions have had an impact on Putin and his inner circle, which is always the sad story of sanctions, but they have had an impact on military industry and on general industry inside Russia. And we do see problems now in the Russian manufacture and repair of uh, military materiel. The Russians are not able to regenerate their missile force. They're not able to Uh, build precision-guided munitions at the rates that they would need to uh, use them on the front lines. They're not able to produce the artillery that's necessary, and they're not able to move it uh, to the front. I mean, the Russians are completely dependent upon the rail network, and once they get closer to Ukraine and have to start moving that from rail to truck, uh, they've just proven that they're not able to maintain and and sustain their, their logistical force. So we are seeing a kind of tertiary impact of sanctions on military industry and industrial capacity. And I think that that is really having an enormous impact on the Russians at the front line.
0: Well, William Arkin, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
3: Thanks so much for having me on again, Ian.
0: And again, I've been speaking with William Arkin, who's a senior editor at Newsweek and one of America's premier military experts whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times and Washington Post and the Los Angeles Times. He also served in Army Intelligence in West Berlin during the Cold War and has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations, including the United States Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch and the Natural Resources Defense Council. And he's also the best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars. And his latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11. And he has an article in Newsweek, Why Joe Biden and Vladimir Zelensky Won't Say Ukraine is Winning the War. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the concern that every crime that the January 6th committee shows that goes unpunished moves the line of acceptable political behavior in the United States a little lower. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephen Marsh, a novelist and culture writer who's written for The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The New Yorker, Esquire, and many other outlets. His books include The Hunger of the Wolf, Raymond and Hannah, The Shining at the Bottom of the Sea, as well as The Unmade Bed, and How Shakespeare Changed Everything. And his latest book is The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future, and he has an article at The Guardian, the January 6th hearings are a brilliant spectacle. That's also their danger. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Marsh. Pleasure to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Stephen. And we go to air just at the, as the tonight's hearing begins at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. And mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of expectation that this will be the kind of blockbuster of the hearing so far, which have been pretty uh, powerful and have garnered a lot of audience. This time around, of course, they're literally in prime time, which means that they've managed to get the major networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, and I don't know about Fox, but to get them to play it uh, live, which is a big deal. So what's your anticipation for tonight?
4: Oh, I think with these hearings I've kind of given up anticipations, you know what I mean? Like it's always more shocking than you think. Like what what you see is always kind of stunning. I think that's kind of the amazing thing about it. So I they've done an amazing job of presenting this as television and keeping us all on our toes much as you would in a, you know, in a scripted television series. I mean, that sounds craven and it sounds like um you know, almost irresponsible, but given the media-saturated era that we're in, I think that's actually the key to political communication for them, uh, that, they, that it is, in fact, quite engrossing to watch. So, you know, I don't really have any anticipations except to say that it'll probably be shocking, and it will probably be devastating, and it will uh, probably be absolutely incredible to see. So,
0: in terms of what's happened not just with Trump's tenure but with America itself from you know social media etc we're becoming more and more a kind of Kardashian culture you write that Trump was a reality television president his term in office turned the United States into a four-year long episode of the Real Housewives of Washington and you also say that uh, in fact we've been inured with these hearings to what we've witnessed, and while liberals may enjoy the exposure of the grifters and buffoons surrounding the president in his final days, every crime the committee shows that goes unpunished moves the line of acceptable political behavior in the United States a little lower. So that's what you're concerned about, right, Stephen? Mm -hmm.
4: Yeah, I mean, what I'm worried about is that we, you know, One of the things that the Trump administration revealed was that, first of all, spectacle matters, that the ability to gather attention at scale was the single most important political feature. So, I mean, the January 6th committee has definitely learned that lesson. But I think the other lesson that the Trump uh, administration taught us... um, is that the structure of American government, like the the actual mechanics of it, are incredibly weak and rely on a lot of very vague things like norms and traditions and perceptions and expectations. And if there are no actions after this committee, like if it does not lead to people being arrested and people being indicted and going to jail, um, what you're going to reveal to everybody, including the far right, is that this is acceptable now this is how the american political system works because the guardrails that the system itself provides like in, in of the constitution are in effect not non-existent so you know what what troubles me most is that we're seeing this kind of exposure of you know what can happen when people just decide to defy all tradition and all norms And if it's allowed to rest, if it's allowed to stay, that will be the norm, and that will be the kind of politics that America has in the future, and I think that that's really terrifying.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Stephen Marsh, who's a novelist and culture writer who's written for The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The New Yorker, Esquire, and many other outlets. His books include The Hunger of the Wolf, Raymond and Hannah, The Shining at the Bottom of the Sea. The Unmade Bed, and How Shakespeare Changed Everything. And his latest book is The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. And he has an article of The Guardian, The January 6th Hearings Are a Brilliant Spectacle. That's also their danger. So there is a concern, of course, that America is becoming an idiocracy. I don't know whether you ever saw the movie. Oh, I um, love that movie. It's a great movie, and unfortunately, the the writer of the movie said, we never thought that we were making a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> right. I mean, you recall that the the president in this ridiculous, dumbed down world of America in the future is is this crazy kind of African American sort of reality TV star, and and frankly, he reminds me of Herschel Walker, who's running for the United States Senate down there right. in, in Georgia, who's a complete moron. Can't put a sentence together, but he might win. And Tommy Turberville, who's another moron that Trump chose, is already in the United States Senate. So it's happening, is it not?
4: Well, what's happening is essentially i mean this, these are the broadest possible ways of thinking about it, but in a in a sense, image is replacing words, and the capacity to control social media is replacing the capacity to control regular media. And reality television is absolutely at the forefront of that. Um, You know, I think I think Trump is really the you know, this is a person who became president by playing a president on television. But then it's also it's not just that. It's that the only thing Trump cared about was the television aspects of his job. Uh, I mean, you know, people called him a fascist. But when fascists came to power, they controlled the political system quite ably. Right. Like they they were they took control of. Of institutions through the mechanisms of the law and through force you know Trump was totally uninterested in the State Department he let almost a third of the positions go completely unfilled his entire tenure right so he was only really you know he was only interested in events as they affected his perception on television um, and that that's what that's what we saw during the Trump years was that kind of rule now I I think you know. I think one word for it is actually a very old one: history, histriocracy, which is rule by actors. And I think that's kind of where we're headed. We're headed into a world where celebrity is the dominant force in American public life, and it will inevitably sort of overwhelm and swallow up politics. I think we're. I mean, the examples you gave are great, but I think you can actually see it on all sides, and you can also see it in other countries, right? I mean, I'm in. I'm in Canada where the the prime minister has been Justin Trudeau since 2015. He's a master of social media. Like that's how he that's how. And, you know, you could also say the same for Obama, who came in quite largely on the strength of his mastery of the nascent Facebook at that point. So, um, yeah, like this, we are living we are becoming a people of screens and we are going to have screened government to represent us. That's that's kind of inevitable.
0: Well, no, it's a go- you can go back further, Stephen, uh, in terms of having telegenic presidents, and that's what gets them elected. Uh, because Jack Kennedy obviously performed yeah. better than Nixon did in the first television debates they had. And clearly, you know, the Republicans did very well with, them, with a movie actor, uh, Ronald Reagan. Norman Um,
4: Mailer. Norman Mailer has this amazing essay in Esquire called uh, Superman at the Supermarket and waiting. And and um, he says that at the Democratic convention where they elected Jack Kennedy, he says he could feel this really strange mood. And he said he realized later that it was because they were about to elect a movie star and that that and that the consequences of that would be drastic for the for the country for the foreseeable future that 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 when they elected kennedy they were electing a movie star and that that would be the shape that american power would have afterwards and i think you know bringing up that point you make a really good one like we are living in a point where the visual medium has essentially progressed and you get you go from jack kennedy to donald trump in a pretty straight
0: line right and then poor joe biden who's simply not telegenic and and he's like a print media guy. He doesn't speak in television sound bites. Um, he speaks in long, kind of boring essays. Yeah, so, and and of course the the telegenic presidents who were successful. Were Bill Clinton, who was who was good on TV, and so was yeah. as you point out, was Barack Obama. Um, that's right. But in terms of this drama that's taking place tonight and has been taking place with the January Sixth Committee. The one piece of it, and here I'm of course I'm talking to you from Los Angeles, which is the right. La La Land where everybody's sitting in a Starbucks with a laptop is a screenwriter. So there is a an incredible movie in this drama that if you tried to sell it to Hollywood, they would have thought it was it was over the top. And that is that President Trump had his head of his Secret secret Service detail, was a real Trumpster, a guy called Tony Arnardo. He liked him so much that he made him Deputy White House Chief of Staff while he was still in the Secret Service. He offered Tony Arnardo the job of head of the Secret Service, but Arnardo said, no, I don't want that job. Why don't you give it to my buddy, uh, James Murray, who's the current head of the Secret Service. They hatched a plot on January the 6th to kidnap the Vice President. <laughs> Mike Pence, and yeah. spirit him off and disappear him so that he couldn't certify Biden's victory, and that would throw it into chaos. Trump could declare a national emergency, and then they, the House would have to vote along the lines of the state legislatures, which are 26 Republicans and 22 democrats, and thus Trump would make a comeback and become Getty's second term illegitimately. That was the plot. That was the plan. So these guys... discipline. plan, eh? <laughs> right, but they disappeared all of their relevant texts and emails, particularly the the texts and emails to Mike Pence's Secret Service detail, who'd spirited him down away from the mob into the basement of the, of the Capitol. They had the limo there waiting to take him, and he wouldn't get into the limo. He said to his Secret Service guys, I trust you guys, but I don't trust the driver. And likewise... Pence's own National Security Advisor, General Kellogg, in a conversation with uh, Tony Arnardo right at that moment, said, I don't trust you guys. You can send the vice president off to Alaska. So that's what happened. The details, the evidence, is apparently being denied this committee because (laughs) Arnardo and Murray destroyed all of the uh, texts. I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up.
4: No. You can't you absolutely can't make it up. I mean, you know, just to add another detail that you also could make up, like James Murray left to go to Snapchat.
0: Right. right. Like, his, I, well, they his, should his fire next, that son of a bitch, really. Can can you believe that? Well,
4: I don't know about firing, but like if this is allowed to happen, like now that this has been revealed and this has been what's happened, if this is allowed to happen without consequences, then everyone involved is going to think that this is acceptable. Right. That this is actually part of the American political process, because the American political process, as has been shown over the past five years, um, is essentially uh, what people think is happening. Like it, it, there's not actually any rules. Right. Like the rules are just like what people think should be done and what people have always done. Right. And so if this is now if this is and that's why revealing that this happened and then not doing anything is way more dangerous than not revealing it because, because it's a question of the social expectations. Like if this is acceptable for secret service agents to be involved in politics at this level, um, you know, that's going to ruin the secret service forever. Right. Uh, unless, unless, unless there are consequences for these actions. So yeah, like it is totally insane. This, the story that, the hearings have revealed right i mean it, it, alongside so much nefariousness i mean i'm struck by how poorly organized it was right and how how little things had been thought through and how uh and, and how no one had seemed to grasp what the consequences of any of these actions were um and also just the sheer naked careerism on display from everyone is is startling to me right when you're dealing with the highest levels of american government uh, like the, the sense of loyalty to the Constitution or to any other value other than you know m- my work as an re- as a representative is is quite extraordinary I think and shows a kind of breakdown that you know even transcends what we're seeing like it's all, it's basically a moral breakdown of of a, of a certain type but first of all it, someone will turn it into a film. Right. Obviously, like if somebody is eventually going to make this into a film. How could they not? Uh, but it, yeah, it, because it is so unbelievable. It, it it transcends what we expected was possible in government. And so I don't know whether it would be a buffoonish comedy or a terrible tragedy or both at the same time. Uh, but it, it's it, it has elements of both. That's for sure.
0: But you, your article makes the point uh, that the January 6th committee, have created a situation where action is required arrest yeah. Donald Trump or accept a political future without standards or guardrails.
4: I believe that now at, at this point, if he, if he's allowed to do like there were before to me, there were questions about whether, whether this is the appropriate way to proceed politically. If this is allowed, if this is considered the American norm of political, uh, discourse, then, First of all, everyone's going to have to play on that level, which is not, you know, fundamentally not democratic, right? Like that's not a th- this is not the the way that people imagine a democracy should function or can function for very long. So, yeah, they have created expectations through this spectacle and they have revealed truths through this spectacle and they absolutely need to act on them or else it, it, this will be, you know, a, a disaster. This will be this will be one of the this will be one of the worst parts of uh, of this of this collapse like this will this will contribute to the collapse of American democracy rather than resist it
0: well, Stephen Marsh, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
4: Always was a pleasure Ian.
0: and again, I've been speaking with Stephen Marsh, who's a novelist and culture writer who has written for The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, the New Yorker Esquire, and many other outlets. His books include. The Hunger of the Wolf, Raymond and Hannah, The Shining at the Bottom of the Sea, The Unmade Bed, and How Shakespeare Changed Everything. And his latest book is The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. And he has an article of The Guardian, The January 6th Hearings Are a Brilliant Spectacle. That's also their danger. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The
2: guy that lived next door Took the kids to the park and by having-